uh, Krista and my mum talking about Tefauti uh, for our first Tefauti pod. Yes, we're sitting on the banks of a lovely dam, Swara Plains Conservancy, about 48 kilometres outside of Nairobi. Um, tell me, Krista. For those who aren't familiar with your sporting journey, tell us a little bit about it. Um, well, making it more relevant to today, I think um, it was quite a long old slog, just 13 years of being a senior international uh, with some massive highs and some horribly, horribly low times as well from non-qualification in Athens, um, being one of the young girls in the squad where our national governing body went bust. Um, hockey was kind of um, very much a lesser sport, I'd say, in in UK. And then culminating over three consecutive Olympic Games, we um, came sixth in Beijing, third in London, after which um, I actually retired, moved out to Africa, uh, back to Kenya, which has always been my home. Um, and then basically three years later, after pursuing a completely different trajectory as a career, um, I got asked to uh, rejoin the squad with 10 months to go to Rio. Um, the team were doing incredibly well. Uh, so managing that transition back into sport was really, really important um, and making sure we managed expectations because there was no guarantees for me either. Thankfully, I got my bum on a seat to go to Rio um, and we won eight matches in 13 days so and became gold medalists and were one of the stories of Rio so it's amazing how much from getting bronze in London how different it is um, by winning gold in Rio. Yeah, you spent a lot of your life in Kenya and what's so special about this country? It's hard to put it into words really um, I guess you always have an affiliation to a place that you call home. Even though I spent a lot of time in England, uh, you, um, Kenya's always been Kenya's always been home for me. It's it's the silly little things, you know. It's the smell after the rain. It's the birds that you recognise. It's the um, freedom that you have and the open spaces. Um, and relatively untouched wilderness. And I think it's very rare that you have that uh, around the world these days. And um, I genuinely feel massively privileged to, to call it home, but also um, massively privileged now uh, with Tefauti to have an ability to try our utmost to try and do our bit to protect it. So what is the Tefauti Foundation and why did you set it up? So I guess that leads me perfectly into that. Um, as I said, Kenya's always been my home. It always will be. And so um, getting a gold medal at an Olympic Games, it's amazing. Even though you're still saying the same things that you've been saying 10 years previous, people start listening a lot more. Um, and with those opportune moments you get opportunities to speak at events at conferences at uh, after dinners and 
you get an audience that yes are interested massively in sport but you know sports business and now charity they're not that far apart you build a community in all of them you empower yourself surrounding yourself with a team member or teams that team members that can help you and that's exactly what I've done with Tafauti you know it's more than just me it's a leadership group of, of six different people all with very specific specialist skills uh, that have ever that have so much to offer got an advisory committee that supports uh, decision making procedures and, and anything and input obviously massively valuable input from a variety of different areas within the corporate industry um, and Tafauti purely was born off fundraising and trying to make a difference, which is what Tafauti means. Tafauti means difference in Swahili. And so when um, I was sort of thinking about building a charity, it was also about just taking a chance, having a punt. Um, I've been an opportunist all my life. Uh, retiring for three years and going back to hockey or being given the opportunity to go back to hockey is pretty uncharted waters. Um, and setting up a charity foundation, I, I viewed it very similarly. You know, I had an opportunity. I took a punt. I ran an event called the Tefauti Conservation Ball. Um, I financially invested in it myself. Um, and I tried to get anybody and everybody within my network to come and, and support us. Um, we had 350 people come to the, to the Hurlingham Club and we raised over £100,000 uh, on our first outing as a fundraising entity and, and I'm led to believe um, that's pretty special. And so off the back of that we now had some, you know, some backing from donors which we're so privileged to have. And then it was about impact, it was about putting that money into places that I felt needed needed it and had partners on the ground that could utilize it to its fullest capacity because pounds in England go very far in Africa and it's about stretching them to their capacity and trying to make sure that we have the maximal impact that we all dream of having at Tafauti and it's been a very very special journey the last two years. And what sort of projects have you got? Um, what are you moving along with at the moment? So yeah, it's been it's been quite an interesting journey on that front too, because you have to find uh, abled partners on the ground that are looking to uh, partner with you on things that you're aligned with, um, having a similar moral compass and being um, direct in in what you need and how you need to go about it. And I don't take having donor money uh, lightly. Uh, I'm very keen to make sure that we get the most out of it. So I've been quite stringent or we've been quite stringent um, as a team to make sure that we identify people that we know are very knowledgeable, are reputable and get the job done. Um, and so into 2020, we've identified four different projects that we're looking to be involved in. Um, one is uh, the Rhone Antelope in Ruma National Park in Kisumu, um, which is sort of the northwestern part of Kenya. Um, and this is a very, it's only a hundred kilometers squared area. It is a national park um, and it's the last known place in Kenya where Rhone Antelope exist, 
There are only 12 uh, left from the recent aerial survey conducted in January. Um, and I think we have a responsibility to save a species or help save a species in our, in our country. And so we've partnered with the Kenya Wildlife Service on um, an ambitious plight to try and restrict uh, an area where we can protect them. The main loss for them is, is actually predation. They um, hide their fawn in the grass and leave it most of the day and hyenas and leopards and things like that come and pick them up. So what we've done is we've tried to restrict the predators in the area or KWS are, are busy doing that at the moment by moving the predators out, giving them uh, a small um, but very habitat specific area for them to roam and then trying to bring a new genetic pool in is the next phase of, um, of the project. So we're a strategic partner uh, enabling uh, some of the research to make sure that we're doing the right thing by the species. So that's the roan antelope project. Um, the second one I would like to talk about is the water project. We fundraised specifically for a water pledge um, at uh, the last conservation ball and it was really important to me that um, we use that money in an area um, that doesn't have water readily available and that does tend to be in the northern parts of Kenya which is slightly more arid uh, and um, the tribal communities up there are pastoralists so they um, have a lot of livestock which ends up degradating the land and compacting it quite considerably and so there's a huge problem there because when it does rain um, there's a huge amount of loss of water because it's surface runoff it just runs off down what we call luggers which are basically dry riverbeds and it's lost um, and we, we have no way of harnessing it so we've identified a place called Lysamis which has a huge population for um, the area, uh, a little town, and what's happened historically is other NGOs or other donors have provided what we call a sand dam, um, but all in the town. And how a sand dam works is you have um, a natural dry riverbed, a lugger like I just explained, um, which has sediment that gets brought down with each flood. Uh, and so if we build a wall uh, and reinforce the wall, uh, in a natural runoff uh, river bed, there is layers of sand that come up against um, the wall surface. Um, this over time, sometimes it takes between three to five years to mature, actually pulls up the water table um, in the sand because inevitably you lose a lot of water through evaporation. Up to 8% a year of water is lost through evaporation. So with the sand um, covering the top of the water, we're able to protect it because we're talking about areas that have temperatures in excess of, you know, 38, 40 degrees centigrade um, during the day. So uh, protecting the water table and then naturally allowing animals to dig for water, which is what they've done um, for absolute generations. Um, and Lysamis is located in an area where there is huge migratory routes for elephants and things like that so they smell water from big distances and historically a lot of those animals have come into town to drink which causes human wildlife conflict with livestock being eaten by lions or um, them fighting over water source and so 
We've identified a location which is about a kilometre and a half out of Lysamis, uh, downriver from the rest of the, uh, of the other sand dams. And it'll provide a safe haven for wildlife to not have to interact with humans uh, as readily. And gravy zebra who are uh, endangered and um, elephant, as I said, and some others, wild dog, etc., can actually get water there. But not only that, of course, uh, community can also access the water during real times of hardship. And it's about trying to create synergy between community and wildlife. And that's what we're doing with the water project. Um, the third project that we're looking to do is um, called the 10% Plan project. Uh, this is in Savo, which has um, been a large part of my life for Savo East. Uh, sort of a lot of my childhood was spent in an area called Galana Wildlife Conservancy and actually um, Savo Trust is our partner uh, with this one and uh, Richard Moller I grew up with the gentleman who runs it and he basically has identified that the community along the, um, the boundary of Savo East uh, National Park are unfortunately in Kamungi uh, Conservancy really suffering with human wildlife conflict. They own their land or their parcels of land, um, but there's only uh, a, river, a dry riverbed that segments them from where the, where the um, park boundary is. And of course at night, um, they're susceptible to crop raiding um, or were still livestock being taken uh, by hyena or wherever it may be. So what we're proposing on this, um, on this project is working with the local community because uh, they are run by community board, uh, that conservancy, and actually talking to them about who would be the preference of trying to support local landowners and those of which have up to, you know, 10... 10 acres each we will fence electric fence in a six-tier electric fence to stop from mongooses all the way up to elephant we will fence off 10 percent of their land but the deal is the rest of the 90 percent has to be um has to be open to wildlife to roam uh, day and night and of course their livestock to be ut utilize it but within that area of that 10 percent they have to have their little homestead their, uh, their shamba, which means their sort of garden where they can grow their sort of um, their basic uh, vegetables and then also all their livestock at night. Now we can't guarantee their safety, but historically they are suffering about 40 raids a month uh, within that area by different animals. And we have impact data for the last six years of that region. So we'll be able to hopefully tell quite quickly how much the um, the impact has uh, been made by uh, the electric fences, and we're looking to identify three three different um, plots, and then be able to use that as a as sort of a placebo to see whether it's something we can roll out elsewhere. And the final one um, that we want to talk about is the vulture project. Um, vultures all over Africa have been succumbing to. Um, various different um, incidents and a lot of it is to do with Chinese medicine for their claws and their beaks um, but also retaliation from human wildlife conflict 
uh, where local communities or indigenous uh, Africans lace um, carcasses with uh, a pesticide called furidan, which unfortunately is very readily available. And that actually causes swelling of the body, quite a painful death. And anything that, <clears throat> that eats the animal uh, or the carcass um, succumbs. So it's not just vultures, but unfortunately, if anyone's watched The Lion King or the likes of it, um, there's a lot of vultures that visit a carcass. And so you can lose up to 20, 30 birds in one, in one carcass. And places like the Mara historically in the last sort of 10 years have had huge dramatic reductions in, in, in vulture numbers. And so we're looking to partner with um, Raptor Rehab, which is a organization based in Nairobi who are looking to do a rehabilitation plan uh, specifically for vultures, where there will be um, harvesting from nests. Uh, vultures have two eggs, one of which is the dominant chick, uh, which therefore gets rid of the other chick. And so if we can harvest one egg from a nest uh, that is wild, uh, rear it in an enclosed facility, but with every intention to release back to the wild so that we can try and encourage um, the numbers to, to, to come back as, as quickly as possible because they do clean up Africa. They might not be uh, the most beautiful animal that you've ever seen uh, and they, have, they don't have the best reputation, but without them, um, it will just, we, we won't have the cleaner uppers around and it will disease spread and infection and things like that because they deal with it. And it's really important that we look after all animals, uh, all shapes and sizes, and I'm quite fond of uh, the ugly five, as they're called, which uh, the vultures firmly are one. Right, tell us, you're, you're studying at the moment for an MBA. Um, tell us a little bit about that and how will it help to Fauti? Yeah, it's been quite a long old slog um, trying to get a master's. Um, I don't think I quite knew what I was signing myself up to um, until it it sort of started and now I'm three years in just sort of getting towards the latter stages and it's in conservation and world heritage. It very much, I very much sort of set upon doing this purely for Tefauti's benefit to some extent um, because I think we need the knowledge base. I think we need uh, the academia. I think we need uh, that sort of side to, um, you know, really have clout in, in the conservation world. And I think we've got a lot of practical knowledge within the team I've got at, at Tefauti in itself, but also we need, we need the academic side. And so it was really important to me to, to pursue that because it is a huge passion of mine, as I'm sure you can tell by listening, you know, conservation is something that is, has been in my family for three generations. Uh, and I don't take that lightly. I feel responsible to, um, to make sure I do what I can, uh, just like my grandfather and everybody else has done, try and do what you can to make positive change. And so um, I've been trying to empower myself with a bit of knowledge and expertise um, in order to be able to share that with, with other people and communities that I tend to find myself in all over the world now. And, um, and I think it's an important process to go through. Um, you've got a junior cycling team who is supporting to Fauti. How did they come about and how are they helping the foundation? Um, I think it's important to never forget where you came from. 
and I come from sport. Uh, and that's been, you know, building teams, being part of a team, being a cog in a wheel. And it's important to Tafauti being different um, and having difference as our name because we are Tafauti um, and together we make Tafauti is how our, how, how our logo is. It was important to me that sport still plays a part. And I was approached uh, by a chap called Ian asking me whether I'd consider um, being a charity partner for um, a group of young cyclists who uh, are not necessarily elitist but have aspirations um, to get in and amongst the elite setup. Um, and I thought, what a lovely way to combine my heritage of the two worlds that I've come from um, and be able to, um, yeah, back a, back a young aspirational team that are travelling all around Europe competing um, with Tafauti, everybody active on their, uh, on their tops and shirts and, and um, on their, their, their car as well and things like that. It's, it's great that our brand is getting out and about um, and also empowering young people to, to give things a go. Uh, and giving them the opportunity or the platform to be able to do that. So, of course, I jumped at the opportunity for Tafauti to partner with this young team and, and um, they, they are helping us immensely through exposure and uh, various different things to, to try and elongate our brand and, and we're trying to return the favour and I think it's important that it, that it stems both ways. What else is coming up in 2020 for Tafauti? Well, unfortunately, 2020 seems to have been uh, started off relatively negatively with uh, COVID-19, which we're sort of in the midst of trying to, you know, work out what's the next move. And as charities, I think we're, you're sort of rightfully so, quite down the pecking order. Um, and survival in countries all over the world is now uh, the complete priority. So what we need to do is harness uh, the funds that we've got put them into effective projects uh, and hope and push and work with those partners to make sure that we deliver where we should. And we also um, will have some fundraising plans. Some of them have been put on hold or postponed uh, until further notice, but we will be sharing that with our network. So please do sign up to our newsletter on our website, which is www.tafauti.org. Um, and we would be we would love to obviously share information with you about some of our fundraising plans and some of the things that we're looking to do uh, in 2020. But more importantly, beyond that, because unfortunately, this year has been tainted a little bit by um, things out of our control. But um, I would love the opportunity to speak to anybody who is interested in how we can actually um, effectively put it right. Uh, and do what we can to genuinely make a difference in in Africa. So whilst the four projects that I've told you about uh, during the podcast are very specific to Kenya, our ambitions are Africa-centric and we would really, really love an opportunity to speak to anybody and the plovers just uh, encouraging that, or should I say lapwing, considering their names have just changed. Um, and I would love an opportunity to speak to anybody who is interested in hearing a little bit more about Tafalti. Thank you so much for your time. And this is just the first of the podcast episodes. So uh, hang tight and there'll be more to follow. Thank you.